you're on the air. Don't say anything crazy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Bro Best Talk. Today we're joined by my biological brother, Sebi, with the honorary yet temporary title of Bro Bear for the duration of this podcast, which will be immediately repealed upon the conclusion of this recording. Now, speaking to our audience of eight subscribers, and thank you for your support, our engagement with all eight of you is second to none. Um, by next year, we should be... <laughs> by next year, I think... I think we might be down to four, which means we'll have that much more time to spam you with ever more high fidelity audio only content, which would be great. <laughs> but Sebi, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on for the first and I'm sure not the last time. Um, and just to give you a bit of context, we're going to be talking about sustainability and then a deep dive into bees and how they fit into the sustainability matrix. So Sebi, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Amazing. Thank you very much for that introduction, brother biological brother i don't biological. think i'm allowed to say brother bear um, bro bear no it feels weird doesn't it oh it does it does um but yeah thank you and i look forward to the coming conversation welcome to the podcast sebi and um looking forward to hearing what you have to say i love how andre introduced you as his biological brother just in the in line of <laughs> the fact that that you're referring to nearly every other guest and, and myself as brother or bro bear on here so Welcome, Sebi. It's it's great to have a blood relation of a bro bear on this podcast. <laughs> it's all very confusing. Yeah. Yeah, he's the true bro bear. He's the real bro bear. I'm the only legitimate brother here, I reckon. <laughs> well, we'll debate the significance of bro bear versus biological bro bear later. <laughs> on a, that's that. Uh, that's a new topic on that another no one podcast cares about. that no one's um, ever going to listen to. Now, <laughs> Sebi, I just want to understand because obviously your background is in physical geography, if I'm not wrong, and you had a particular interest in sustainability, and then you've taken up in almost a hobby capacity um, beekeeping itself. So, in just maybe if we just start with the degree and sort of maybe some of your favourite or the highlights from that degree, including, I imagine that uh, trip you took to the United States. Yes, of course. So, um, yeah, so I studied at Nottingham for three years, the University of Nottingham, and I, like you say, studied human geography. Um, and, like, what really attracted me to human geography is the, the capacity it gives you to really understand your environment. So, you know, if somebody, if a layman looks at a river, they, all they see is a really, you know, a moving body of water... But once you get taught what, you know, the processes behind the river's formation, you can really, you see the world through a different lens. Mm. And that's really attractive to me. Yeah. You know, instead of a thing. So, you, yeah. I think you mean physical geography, right? What did I say? Human geography. <laughs> <laughs> right. How the, hell did, how the hell did you get a first? <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> but do go on. <laughs> Sebi, that's... That's an astute point. Context is everything when it comes to, to geography, right? Yeah, exactly. You just, I think you just get, get in a, a real appreciation for your surroundings that, you know, not many other subjects do give you. Um, you know, where someone would look at a tree, we can really understand the processes behind those, um, you know, those living organisms, but also physical um, processes and landscapes and how they really form. Like, I think a good example was when, BB and me went to the Lake District and we could understand why the valleys were there and how they formed. And it gave, gives you a real appreciation for 
you know, how these beautiful landscapes yeah. came about. Yeah, you, you really do see the fingerprint of God, if I can put it in a more poetic sense. <laughs> what an eloquent way of putting it. But no, there, there's, there's things as mundane. It's, it's, it's interesting because you do notice things that other people might not, like random boulders in the middle of a U-shaped valley might well be glacial till from the Ice Age. They very, yeah, they probably are, to be honest. Um, where else would they come from? But like most people would just be perplexed by the big boulder there. But we can really, you know, in a way, imagine the processes behind that and visualize them. And I think that's in a way quite, quite profound. Yeah, and I'm coming in as a charlatan really because I didn't pursue um, physical geography in terms of my degree it was it was the initial attraction of geography as a subject as a whole though holistically because it it was almost that geography was the most tangible subject in terms of understanding the real world because I probably wasn't smart enough to understand physics which is the I suppose a far more sophisticated way of looking at some of these natural processes in the quanta and all the things that go on in the quantum realm but I felt like geography was the most real and tangible subject out there in terms of understanding the world that surrounds us. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I would also agree with your point that physical geography is the real geography. Um, hmm. yeah. This is the, the age-old debate, isn't oh, it? Oh, 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 here we go. <laughs> yeah, the, well, I didn't think we'd get oh, into it's this already, it's, all, Leo. This, is, human this is basically a Jerry Springer moment for geographers, isn't it? <laughs> the um, the age-old uh, we're at our throats, you know, human, human is more related to, you know, how, how humans affect the, um, the wilderness. Therefore, you know, it's, it's more important because we are the sort of drivers of change where, you know, the, the physical geographers would argue, you know, mother earth is everything. It's, uh, it's paramount. Um, and it doesn't really matter what humans do. Um, so they have almost like a fatalistic argument and that's how they argue their corner there's also, I suppose there's also, Sebi, the, the kind of um, uh, approach, you, you kind of alluded to it when you mentioned physics there, Andre, is with physical geography, I suppose that could be um, kind of conceded as a, as a more harder science and, and therefore more worthy of um, geographers in general, more worthy of, uh, of prestige, I suppose. Yeah, well, well, well Sebi is... Um the uh, recipient of a bsc you see as opposed to our mere bas i am i am a scientist but it, a claimed scientist he says with such zeal <laughs> <laughs> such flair <laughs> yeah. with lip smacking satisfaction i could sense it across the um, few miles that separate us sebi but but no i i think for the first time i'm realizing actually these uh, this is the subject that binds us and unites us is geography. We've got three geographers in the room here, lads. Hey, oh, oh, oh. We do, we do. Yeah, just realising this. So I, I think, Sebi, where did the... Um, was it from your interest of the natural world and understanding the dynamics behind the natural world that drew you towards bees and actually owning your own hives? Because that's not something most people can say. Um, so I've actually because of the podcast and the opportunity to talk about like why I got into beekeeping, I've really mm. had a good, good think about why, why the hell I'm kind of obsessed about bees um, <laughs> and why most people aren't. So uh, I think it is just a connection with a lot of my childhood memories, you know, very like strong, happy memories of, you know, um, English summer holidays and 
time spent in Kew Gardens and different parklands. And often those are associated with bees, just the sound of the bees, flowers, you know, those, those, those are some of like the happiest memories I've ever had. And I think it's that association with bees being a happy thing, something I, um, you know, associate with happy days, some of the happiest days of my life is, you know, a component of why I'm so interested and, in, you know, want to be involved with them and have a deeper connection with them. Wow, so quite a philosophical answer. Actually, mm. it's not something I was expecting, mm. but what a what a great answer to that question. And so, do you think mm. that being the starting point in terms of your interest in hives and beekeeping, has there been something, a new motivator that unearthed itself as you delved deeper into the intricacies and complexities of looking after the bees, the hives, the cycles, the seasonality, the swarming, all the, all of that? Yeah. So. I think it's also so from from being interested in bees and having that positive association with them um I've also mm -hmm. always kind of just been naturally interested in the environment and really enjoyed being outdoors and a lot of people say that but I I really feel like my lifestyle as a a resident of the urban area um <laughs> is just quite you know gray and very much manipulated completely by humans. Everything's, you know, very much groomed, all the parklands are. And I, I kind of always craved being actually present with true wilderness and true, you know, truly wild animals where, you know, walking through Ealing, you'd, you'd be lucky to come across, you know, well, I guess you would come across a pigeon and, and lucky if you'd see a wood pigeon at that. You, you know, you'd probably write home if you saw a wood one. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's just the attraction of being so closely and um, and you know so strongly interconnected with these animals, these completely wild animals, is just extremely attractive to me because that little corner of my grandma's garden is the realm of the bees, and it isn't. It isn't. Mm. Um, an area that's controlled by humans it's, it's an area controlled by them and i'm entering their their yeah. space and you know there's also a fear involved with that where i'm actually fearful of getting stung and that also gives me a bit of a rush that wow. you know i'm actually experiencing real wilderness here and real true nature mm. um mm. something that you don't, just don't mm. come across in london Sort of like an environment, Sebi, where the animals are in control and, the, and nature is in control. And, and that's, I suppose that's quite an exotic feeling in, in London. Exactly, yeah. And just being able to witness that is quite rare. You know, I think it's unique, really. You, you, you just can't witness that. And the, like Bibi said, the intricacies of the life cycles and the behaviours, being able to spectate and sit by a beehive and watch them come in with the with the nectar and the pollen on their feet is quite beautiful in a way and also just mesmerizing and quite magical. Um, you know, these insects are going out and landing on flowers, beautiful flowers and sucking nectar from them and then turning all this nectar from all these hundreds of thousands of flowers into honey. It just sounds mythical. It sounds like fantastical. It, these they sound like fairies to me in a weird way that they're such, you know, 
pure, clean animals and have such like a pure, clean lifestyle. Mm. They're they're almost stewards of nature, aren't they, Sebi? I mean, there's they're yeah. they're um, not just concerned with their own hive existence, but um, inadvertently they're they're creating beautiful growth patterns in a range of flora. No, exactly. Yeah, and they're just. I would say they're associated with the most beautiful things in nature. That is a flower, and you know you you have other insects like flies and things that you don't really associate with being beautiful. They have quite ugly life cycles, but with bees, it's it's all very much you know very beautiful in a way, and it's just yeah, I don't really. Know. It sounds like you've got a very profoundly deep and almost philosophical connection with the bees, and you've sort of, I suppose, taken the time to really look at them, not just watch, but actually sit and almost like a philosopher, you know, draw insights from your observed experience. And it sounds, you know, you would only be able to draw the insights you have by spending a significant amount of time mm. just looking and being in the moment. You know, no screens, just nature. And understanding that, I suppose, intricate and symbiotic relationship between the bees and the environment and kind of being unable to distinguish one or the other because the bees are the environment, the environment are the bees. Mm. And it's not like the plants and the, fa the flora and the fauna are different. They are one. They are Gaia they are all yeah exactly it's it's just I also get a craving of wanting to be in nature and being be involved with nature and like I you know said earlier when a lot of my fondest memories from childhood were bees I was also always curious what, where these bees went where they came from what what they were doing and you know being a beekeeper you really have a true insight into these these animals life cycles and you're you know you can actually put your hand into the hive and interact with them and i think that's just so you know exciting and and very different in a way um from anything else i've really experienced and it's quite a a, a pure activity there isn't it's you know it's not really influenced by humans it's mm. you're entering their world and you're you're the alien in that in that situation mm. and that's a feeling you just don't get anywhere else yeah and i feel like it's, it's interesting that you initially described the bees as animals and it was mm. to me at least that sounds like you're almost endowing them with a sentience right that most people wouldn't endow any sort of insect beings with and it just speaks i suppose to the profound respect you have for the bees and understanding their intrinsic role within the wider environment and how important they are as natural pollinators, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's just the their capacity um, to to you know to to navigate to do all the different um, you know behaviors that they do, such as rearing their young, all this from you know being a young bee to being a nurse bee in the in the beginnings of their life cycles to you know eventually graduating to be a forager so um it's just quite amazing you don't really see insects a lot of insects have relatively simplistic life cycles but here you have a true community of like you say you know in a way they are quite you know i'd say higher insects or even animals in a way um with sentience exactly 
Um, and and Sebi, is that because sort of the different stages in their their life cycles are so distinct and different? They've they've got like very distinctive levels of maturity from say their their early days to to sort of the last days and the middle days. Yeah, exactly. There's like it's quite comparative to the human life cycle, where you get the young um, being quite dependent on the older bees and learning their way within the hive. Um, and basically the young bees are the nurse bees. So they look after the young and uh, feed the, the young royal jelly and honey and pollen. Uh, and then eventually, because their value kind of drops with their age, because they're kind of, they're starting to near their end of the life cycle, they can take on the high risk job of foraging where, you know, you're going, you're leaving the hive and there is high likelihood that they won't return because of just fluke coincidences, getting hit by a car. It's a dangerous word out there. So that's why you only see older forager bees is because they're the, you know, relatively the least valuable to the colony. And, um, in terms of you know numbers of days left yeah i suppose number of um utilizable days if that's a word but yeah so, so, yeah, so yeah, i exactly. suppose they've almost hit their expiry date and it's suppose that cold most calculation of a hive that is both maybe cold from the outsider's perspective yet necessary for to ensure it thrives right exactly yeah um, and, and what do you describe the uh, swarm of bees? Because it, it's not a hive as a human construct. So, what would you describe them as? The colony? Is it a colony? Yeah, exactly. You'd use, you'd call that population of bees headed by the queen a, a, a colony. Um, and it's also with being a beekeeper, you really get, like I said before, an insight into a hive. And I would compare it to. Um, you know, the mechanism of a watch. So you, you've got mm. the external clock face and it looks relatively simplistic. You know, there's some movement. But once you, you know, take the lid off or take the back of the watch off, there's like a beautiful, like mes- mem- mm. mesmerizing complexity to it. And you could just stare at the back of a watch. You know, the mechanism's in a way beautiful. And then the, that's mm. the same way I find looking at a beehive is just, there's... It, you know, infinite complexity to all their behaviors. And somehow there's still these individual beings are interacting in unison and and synchronicity towards an end goal. Yeah, I've, I've almost like seen that uh, visually when you've taken a slide out of one of your hives, Sebi. You can almost see yeah. almost mm. the, the um, analogy of the watch is very apt because it's almost like you've got swirling cogs of bees in a very real visual sense and whether that's because they're trying to tell the other bees where the pollen is i understand that can be one of the signals and the way they mimic it they almost dance in a almost a, a sequential and almost mathematically predictable way they they they're very sophisticated as as a as a as a swarm and as a colony and it's very interesting when you lift that out that there are recognizable patterns across that whole screen of honeycomb exactly yeah um yeah and and i believe that the uh patterns of the um you know those those divisions within the beehives i believe they have some kind of link to the the fibonacci sequence um it, did you uh, ever hear anything about that sebi this is beyond my realm leo 
Uh, there's um, I'm a simplistic beekeeper. You're you're overcomplicating the problem there. <laughs> <laughs> there's um, there's mm-hmm. a strange um pattern which which is also similar um to the um the pattern that that you see in many flowers, um, sort of ah the golden ratio. The golden ratio, yes. Um, that um. I was going to say Leonardo DiCaprio then, but Leonardo da Vinci um, <laughs> observed. And, and I believe that the, the pattern of, of the hives actually falls under that ratio as well. So coming back to what you both were just saying, the, the mathematical, uh, the patterns are almost mathematically predictable. Um, and from what I understand, mm. the way that the Fibonacci sequence and the bees interrelate is it's between different genders, um, male and female bees and how they relate to the queen. Yeah. Well, certainly when we talk about the golden ratio, it's a ratio that appears over and over again in nature, whether that's sort of the distancing of the buds on a flower or the shape of the petals. I think the constant itself in terms of the golden ratio is 1.618. And it appears across a variety of seemingly disparate areas within nature, not least probably the hives and the proportions that go into the is it hexagons, Sebi, or pentagons? It's hexagons, yeah. right? That the 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 honeycomb is comprised of. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's hexagons. Um, yeah. I, I just reminded myself mm. another of a, like another element to my like fascination and interest in beekeeping. Um, I, I remember reading mm. an article about a woman who was beekeeping, and she just wrote uh, a section about it, and it, it kind of struck a chord with me. I'm not going to quote her or anything, but the idea comes from there. Um, and it's just the process of opening up a hive, you need to get the smoker ready. So you've got the smokiness of the whole process. It is because as a beekeeper, you need to be in a state of calm and tranquility and complete control because if you're too, you know, sudden or, um, yeah, sudden with your movements, you can alert the bees and they start to feel more angry they feel more threatened but if your movements are slower more fluid Mm. then they feel less alarmed and you know um, in less of danger so you've got that element of being in that state of calm and tranquility and just really you know fully focused on your now and your situation currently then you've got so this is i'm trying to get out here is essential the like what senses are going on whilst you're beekeeping so you've got that that state of mind. Then you've got the smokiness. You've got you know the whiffs of the pine cones and the the pine needles burning, and that's quite a spirit in a way like a frankincense smell. So the whole you you you're getting mm-hmm. quite a lot of this smell, and it's, it's it is pleasurable. It is a it is a really 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 like nice smell. So you're getting that as well. But then you're also getting this like mm. warm umami smell from the the hive as well this kind of deep rich honey-like smell coming up from the bees and all this just comes into you know like a a drowsy woody mellowy warm warm smells and the whole experience is i'd say is in a way quite spiritual um wow it's almost a it sounds like a like you say Sebi, a religious mm. ritual you're yeah, undertaking and you're exactly. the high priest exactly yeah <laughs> in your in, yeah. and you know what he's you are even the, got the, special the overalls for it yeah so yeah sebi has got the full oh, kit really? Sebi, tell um 
Lear what it takes to uh, open up a hive safely in the Western world because there'll be mad people in Mm -hmm. the Far East that just do it um, naked. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just dive in. Yeah, so basically you just don't don't want to be stung. And some of my hives is actually hive to hive, the behavior changes. So certain hives are more aggressive than others. It's just... It just depends on on the type and the breed, but also the queen. Um, but also, you can sometimes have hmm. where a queen mates with a few drones, which are male bees. You can have periods where she's laying eggs from one drone, which have been fertilized by one drone, which is more aggressive than the next. So you get wet. So one week I could go to the hive and it's extremely aggressive at me because at that point those eggs had hatched. And I was getting attacked by the, the offspring of that angry drone. And then the next week after that, you know, a karma drone might have mated with the queen. Hence, you get a different behavior of the hive, which is also quite interesting. But um, That's fascinating. Yes. Yeah, because I, I had this horrible week or month <laughs> of my hive just absolutely hating me and attacking me in this vicious way. And I got quite alarmed, really. I got, you know, completely covered <laughs> in bees. Um and I actually thought of, you know, possibly terminating the hive because it was just dangerous. Um, they seemed extremely aggressive. But yeah. thankfully, I gave them a bit of time. And, and about a month later, the, the temperament of the hive was completely different and calm and completely normal. Gosh. And you think this was just directly related to the sort of aggression of, of drones in that, in that given month then, Sebi? Yeah, yeah, genuine, yeah, definitely. Because my, you know, the way I went about opening the hives was identical, um, and yeah, it's 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 known that sometimes a queen can um, mate with a drone which is from Africanized offspring, and you know, Africanized bees within the beekeeping community is a scary thing. You don't want Africanized bees. These these are the bees that basically chase you until. <laughs> Until you, you don't, you're not alone, you're not, you're not alone, you know, you can't run much further and you get smothered by them. You're like, these are <laughs> Smell bees. Smell your fear. Yeah, exactly. So these, you know, horror stories of people being in pools and getting, you know, completely covered by bees and getting terribly attacked. These, mm. these are often caused by Africanized bees. Um, and people have Africanized bees for probably a month and then hopefully... If they have, if the queen hasn't mated with too many Africanized drones, then that behavior will subside after time, um, which I think that was the case with me. And Sebi, what was what's mm. the terminology around the Africanized? Is that just a generic term in terms of the aggression, the spike in aggression, or is it a different species of bee to the uh, uh, layman here? Yeah, so the Africanization, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm pretty pretty sure that is the like. Um, the, the genetic makeup of that line of, of you know of bees of that um, I don't know how to say um, of that genome I guess yeah, of, that, of that dynasty or whatever yeah exactly so you got European bees but also I guess they interbred at some point with Africanized bees and these <laughs> these bees are horribly aggressive right they will just do just basically swarm you so as you open the hive they will an alarm will go out and basically the whole hive starts to basically want to cover you. Um, and it, it, even with the full protection of the whole suit, head covering, um, 
some old trackies from you know some old gym trackies and <laughs> socks around the bottoms of them um it's alarming because yeah. you're basically slowly losing light as the, the bees cover your face mask and although you know you're not going to get stung it's just a bit distressing and not yeah, very, yeah very i much can imagine fun. um so Gosh. you you better trust your equipment and uh yeah mm. you don't want to be skimping on that so Sebi, sometimes you see images on on television or on on the internet of people, often in the Far East, that that are covered in bees on on the bare skin. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, that carries some risk. At, at what point would um, you know the bees perhaps turn um, in terms of um, the, their sort of temperament from peaceful and just covering a human body? to suddenly aggressive is, is there sort of a, a human trait or um, a human movement that would would make them suddenly switch or is it is it nothing to do with that is it pure chance uh so with the like bee beards that you see on like the guinness world records and different mad people <laughs> wearing them basically in that instance they've taken a queen from a hive and put her in a little cage and put that cage on that man's beard or that man's chin and when the queen when the bees think they've lost their queen they go and look for her so they sense her smell Mm. and at the point where they find her they swarm around her and try and protect her in with the idea of producing another hive in that place because they think they've the queen's left the hive (laughs) to find a new location So at that point, they're preoccupied with building new comb and they're preoccupied with making sure their queen's safe and their aggression completely subsides. So they're not actually looking to sting sting anyone because they've got higher priorities. Mm. So that's why they're so docile and you won't see the man with the beard with a horrible, I guess, red spotty beard afterwards because he's been stung hundreds of times. Yeah. But yeah, I, that's that's what explains that that behavior. Incredible. So so the the presence of the queen on the the beard will will completely sort of silence any sort of aggression from them. Exactly. Yeah, because they think they're homeless and they really need to focus on finding a home and possibly building a home on that man's chin by <laughs> starting to draw out comb on 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 in and around his uh, <laughs> his chin area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all going to be a fashion. It's all the rage in the 2020s. I can see it already. <laughs> <laughs> Hips to be beards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, just beards. We're so last year, guys. We need to move to bees now. Um, <laughs> Sebi, I, I really want to understand the mechanism behind the smoke. Oh, well, I have heard that it's supposedly calming to the bees. So how does that work? And is that the case? Uh, so... What happens is a few mechanisms occur. So basically, smoke signifies in nature fire, doesn't it? So mm-hmm. if the bees sense smoke, they think there's a fire coming towards them. So at that point, they need to self-preserve. And you know, in in the complete emergency, they might actually have to vacate that hive and swarm in emergency and leave so they don't all burn to death. Mm-hmm. So in order to leave that hive, what they need to do is prioritize the resources mm. they have in that hive. So they smell the smoke, think fire's coming towards them, and you don't want to leave your hive with all that precious honey in it. 
So mm. what they do is start gorging themselves on honey, basically just <laughs> downing pints of honey each. Just absolutely, just having an absolute <laughs> field day, um, just gorging themselves. Um, and so what this means is their stomachs become really, really full with honey. And this makes them, like you say, a bit more docile, a bit more groggy because of the amount of carbs they've just consumed. But also um, because as their <laughs> abdomen swells, it's probably not abdomen, it's, I don't know the name, the insect name for that area. Um, but as that swells, the, the actual sting changes its position and actually recesses into the body of the bee. So they're less likely to actually be able to, to successfully sting you as a result. Mm. Um, and so, and but also you're mm. as a beekeeper approaching the hive, you're a secondary threat to them. Their primary threat is the smoke and the fire and making sure they don't all burn to death. You going through the hive and opening up and looking, inspecting it is kind of a secondary problem to them. So they're not going to focus you and they're probably not going to attack you because of that. Right, that's fascinating, but it makes all the sense in the world. And in your experience, have you found it to be a pretty effective way of making the hive, mm. the swarm, a bit that bit more docile? Oh, it, yeah, it's it's like a miracle cure. It's really. noticeable, is it? Definitely. So w- once you've opened a hive, you kind of there's a there's a noise to a hive. There's mm. a buzz. There's a vibration. There's like a deep, I don't know, bellyish. Um, like a a bass a bass sound uh, because they're all flapping their wings and you know all from all their activities and mm. as you go through the hive you start to hear that deep you know note of a noise become higher pitched as they become more and more annoyed at you <laughs> interfering with their house um, yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> So they're just slowly getting more and more anxious and annoyed at you. And so you're kind of listening out for that. You're feeling, you're imagining being a bee in that hive. And, you know, understanding that noise is really important to knowing when to smoke them. As that noise becomes higher pitched, indicating, you know, more annoyance, you, 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 just, you just want to puff them a bit. A couple of times, it doesn't take much. And after that, the noise again subsides and it lowers mm. and the whole hive becomes calmer and forgets about you and remembers about the flame and the fire. Um, and so again, it's like a distraction. Mm. That's incredible. I mean, just the fact that you're, you're, you're almost like a musician there, Sebi, <laughs> you know, you're administering the smoke and then the, the pitch of the, the buzz is altered as a result. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I had no idea that, um, the smoke until this conversation that the smoke had such a um such a huge effect on their behavior um so that must i mean that sounds like a pretty ancient practice that's that's been around for a long long time yeah so i think it's just i think it because it has such a massive effect on the bees behavior it has been used throughout the world um and hmm. i think yeah it's, it's just used quite um yeah basically on every continent and by every beekeeper it's basically our um our, our greatest weapon <laughs> in, in our job it's like mm-hmm. the, the sacred potion is our is our smoke and we, we swear by mm. it in, in 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 every inspection if you don't have smoke you're you're basically asking to get attacked and um you're just causing 
the bees more stress in a way and also you're probably causing yourself more injury yeah so i remember Sebi, we were watching that hilarious um documentary around the hallucinogenic honey on vice do you remember uh, yeah, <laughs> and there was yeah, that yeah, Chinese yeah, yeah. guy who got absolutely <laughs> had a bit too much. Basically, <laughs> was passing out by the end of the documentary. But anyway, they were that honey was sort of infamously inaccessible in that they had to abseil down these sheer cliffs to get down to the hives that were hanging, literally off an overhang of cliff. And what they had to do was abseil down these ropes made of vines and use these sort of hand-thatched baskets to pick the honey. And they, I too remember, they were using the um, smoke as a mitigator to the aggression of the bees. Uh, but it's interesting because that, do you remember, Sebi, that mad honey um, that they were talking about? I'm, I was reading an article recently about that honey. Apparently, it's got a slightly bitter taste and a bit of a reddish colour. Um, and apparently, it's hallucinogenic by token of where the pollen that's created that honey has come from so it comes from a few types of rhododendrons which of course are now i suppose semi-native to the uk given that we brought them over or the victorians brought them over back in the 1800s in any case that specific pollen seems to create this neurotoxin of some description which creates these hallucinogenic effects in both animals and humans and basically depending on how much that person or animal consumes the reactions can kind of range from hallucinations to a slower heartbeat to even you know, serious as temporary paralysis and complete unconsciousness. And I suppose this leads me on to, Sebi, a nice entry and a gateway into the end product or the reason a lot of people have hives, which is honey. And I just want to get maybe your angle and perspective on that process in terms of harvesting the honey. I'm sure that must have been in quite a deep satisfaction sense, um, something you really enjoyed in terms of the amount of time and energy you invested in putting the hives together getting the bees to um, make the hive their home and then collecting i suppose the fruits of your labor yeah exactly i think it's the amount of honey you gather or harvest at the end of this the season mm. is a direct reflection of how much of a good beekeeper you've been and how well you've managed the colony throughout the year um, and there is something kind of, you know, primeval, like prehistoric about the process of harvesting your, 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 you know, the fruits of your labor in the most, you know, kind of basic way. So, you know, you could compare it, to, you know, the farmer harvesting his mm. crop or, you know, the beekeeper harvesting his honey. Um, yeah, so it is extremely, extremely um, a rewarding task. Um, mm. and, but you, you know, it's all about balance. So you, you can't really be taking too much honey because otherwise the, the, the bees, basically that's a, the, the food source for their overwintering. So as there aren't any flowers over winter, they need that honey to be eaten as a source of energy for them to keep, you know, themselves, you know, at a certain temperature throughout winter. So if you take too much honey, they will starve to death and won't be able to survive, um, so that's also a skill in knowing how much to take and also not harvesting all of it. So if you have a, a frame full of honey, you might actually not harvest that honey until later into the winter because you might actually still have to put that frame back if mm -hmm. the acceleration, you know, the, 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 the honey is being eaten at an accelerated rate. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, I'd say it is an extremely rewarding task and it's, it's just been, yeah, it's just been brilliant. And I would say, you know, I don't think this is biased, but my honey is probably the best tasting honey out there. <laughs> it tastes extra sweet when you put all that work in, I'm sure. Brilliant. Yeah, but it's exactly. amazing because to me, as the layman, until I understood this, Sebi, and I suppose it's, it's obvious um, after the fact, but it didn't make sense to me at the time exactly, or I didn't quite understand the mechanism and the reasons as to why bees create the honey in the first place. I understood it was some sort of food source. But essentially what you're saying is it's rations for the winter, right? To get the colony through those hard months to make sure they see the spring. Exactly. It's basically like their lard. It's basically like our, okay. our belly okay. fat. It's, right. um, it's what gets them through the, <laughs> it was what gets them through the winter. Yeah. And by having that source of honey, um, like most insects, we can't really harvest any source of honey or anything, you know, similar to it. And this is because the, the bees have found this process of pr producing and um, storing honey over winter. And this allows them to actually leave hibernation after winter earlier and get the first spring flowers. So it gives them a competitive advantage against all other insects in that they're allowed to sustain their numbers at a high number. And so they actually beat all the other insects as they actually, you know, for example, a, a wasp queen, she, 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 she survives over winter alone. She doesn't have any workers with her. So she needs to build the whole hive from scratch, lay the eggs, wait for the eggs to hatch. And only then does she have, um, does she have uh, wasps to work for her? But mm. here, a bee, a bee colony has hundreds of bees ready to go at the first day of spring. Mm. And this is, this is huge. Yeah. Um, and this is why, you know, the bee, the honeybee is extremely successful as an insect. Yeah, and this dynamic, Sebi, I mean, mm. I don't know of any other insects, much less animals, that mirror this model in terms of having a single potentially point of failure in the queen. And I suppose having, putting all the chips on one number and making sure, I suppose in some respects it's quite a high risk strategy, but for whatever reason, it stood the test of time because bees have been around since forever, right? Yeah, exactly. And in a way, um, similar to an ant colony, the queen's sounds like she's in power, but mm. actually she's really a slave to, to the colony. Her only job is to lay eggs. Uh, she doesn't really have any influence on any of the other bees, you know, in, a, in the way we'd imagine a queen to be dictating the activities of the colony. But all she is really is just a, an egg slave, a slave right. to just produce and lay eggs. It's, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. Yeah. You'd think she was some kind of benign ruler, uh, some kind of dictator <laughs> yeah. of the hive. Um, that commands all authority, you know, kind of the Queen Poobah that has all these different <laughs> exalted offices. But actually, but what you're saying, Sebi, she's actually more of the subservient one, um, you know, other than obviously the, the, the process of reproduction. Exactly. She's basically a slave. She doesn't really get to leave the hive <laughs> apart from when she mates. Um, and after that, she loses her wings. So... You know, no, she, no. Does, she, she doesn't actually lose her wings. That's, um, um, but um, yeah, it's just, she's probably got less freedom than any other bee out there. 
so far from an absolute monarchy but actually a servant leader which is a lot of what a lot of today's human leaders in businesses and elsewhere aspire to be <laughs> um so sebi i'm really interested to understand um the importance because we get told over and over again the importance of bees as natural pollinators and you know we get these scary images on social media and elsewhere of what a, a traditional supermarket would look like if bees were to vanish overnight so is this something you've ever taken an interest in in terms of the wide obviously we were talking about the microcosm of your particular um beehives now talking on the macro scale is is there still this risk that's posed to bees i think it, if my memory serves me correctly it was particularly around this nasty fungus that was affecting the bees ability to fly and their wings were distorted um i just want to understand whether that's still a dynamic that's at play and a risk to the bee colonies globally and you know are we heading slowly towards a potential population collapse yeah so there are many real um i guess threats to the bee population from a like pathogenic um, point of view so you've got the mm. colony collapse disorder um which is basically i'm not sure I, I, I'm, I haven't fully read up on this but i think it might be the, the fungus you're referring to um but also you've got mm. foul brood um and like basically like us any any animal is afflicted by with disease and you know more recent domestication of bees in you know human-made hives has made the problem mm. exasperated the problem for example mm. um i think we'll we'll move on to this now but um the the almond um pollination in california is an event in a beekeeper's calendar in America, a huge event, basically. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. basically every beekeeper in the US come, you know, swarm in a way, pardon the pun, mm. um, on, on into California so that they can release their hives and their bees to enable these almond farmers to fully, fully pollinate all of their trees and to maximize their harvests. And so all of these beekeepers from the whole of the US converge on this one area of California. And this creates a huge mixing pot of just pathogens. Basically, all these bees are intermixing and they're all spreading and they're all passing on these different pathogens, for example, varroa mites, different types of mites, different types of diseases. And this, this, this practice has, you know, accelerated the 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 impact and like um increased uh, magnified the impact that these diseases have on the actual whole population of the uh, honeybee because often these honeybees do swarm and do go into the wild and intermix with wild bees and so these terrible pathogens mm. that might be able to be controlled by humans with medication these wild colonies don't stand a chance because they, they don't have that aid. So the whole, the whole system is, is, is broken, basically. It's really interesting you say that because I was hoping that it wouldn't be an exacerbator of the existing problem around the spread mm. of 
various diseases that hinder and kill the bee population i thought actually that the market dynamics at hand which are that we need more beekeepers and therefore we need more bees and actually market dynamics dictate that it's actually profitable for you to be a beekeeper at this time particularly if we're talking about the seasonality of the pollination of californian almonds i thought that that might inadvertently almost help the bee population and turn more people towards beekeeping in the search for profit through a free market mechanism but it sounds like it's actually doing the opposite in terms of the bee population and the sustainability of bees and the threat of disease to bees it sounds like it's just propagating that problem so be on balance exactly right? it's i guess there's a financial benefit to it to beekeepers but on a you know if you're looking at it from the point of a bee you, you don't want to be really going yeah. on holiday to california in the almond season because you're probably <laughs> going to get very very ill wow <laughs> yeah so does and these, these diseases these pathogens sebi they affect uh human populations as well as bee populations uh so i don't i don't think so it's just i think because our um physiology is so different that what afflicts a bee it doesn't really it can't really be transferred into human populations i don't know is that what you mean is that well just when you said going on holiday (laughs) (laughs) that got me got me confused but by the sounds of it, either way, the, the release of, of yeah. mass bees from all different corners of the U.S. Um, is is more to the detriment of their yeah. their life cycle right now and their own existence. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Sorry, I didn't clarify that. I meant the the bees are going on holiday. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> a terrible holiday where they go to catch a pandemic. <laughs> So, Sebi, it doesn't sound like this is um, a lot of these diseases that are afflicting the bees isn't something that's going to pass a bit like our current COVID situation. It sounds like it's something that's persistent because it might not be of a viral nature. It might be like we spoke earlier, a fungus amongst others, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's basically how well can your hive tolerate these pathogens? Every hive base in the UK has these varomites and these aren't these aren't actually natural mites um they're basically they've come from persia or the the middle east and they spread throughout the world's um honeybee populations and what they do is sit on a bee's um yeah just basically i don't know i don't really know i should have looked up the physiology of a bee but um <laughs> the thorax exactly the thorax thank you thank <laughs> you a wild stab at that uh, let's Shot just go with that there. yeah <laughs> basically these bee- these mites suck the blood of bees and they just weaken weaken the colony the bee can't fly as far because it's ill it feels it doesn't have as much energy and so these these problems are exasperated by humans because that varroa mite would have never been found in the uk um right. without humans moving these hives and these bee um, intermixing and interbreeding these bee populations throughout the world so we're a huge accelerator of pathogenesis within these you know um, insect communities Mm, so it was Mm. basically a blood-sucking parasite right exactly yeah 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 Yeah. yeah. (laughs) bastard evil and coming back to to human 
and physical geography there, Sebi. You can see that they're um, they're both incredibly intertwined, aren't they? How they they influence one another. Unfortunately, human meddling has has not done too many favors for the uh, the 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 bee population. It seems globally. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a really interesting point. I think that would be a, a great dissertation uh, piece in, in you know really understanding how how that's worked and the the history of bees and disease and how humans have had a huge impact on that you are you often you know hear about bees diseases and bees being ill bees numbers declining and you don't that sounds like a natural mechanism that sounds like something that's you know always been happening but actually we're the real drivers of that and um yeah and you know it's essential for us to understand how that's happening for us to be able to stop it and actually um stop it yeah that's fascinating but yeah maybe mm. unsurprising because so many of these i suppose um issues and negative dynamics are perpetuated from an anthropogenic perspective right it's a kind of if we weren't in the equation these things wouldn't have happened and it, it, it's through the unnatural leverage of natural resources that these things seem to occur in a lot of cases right whether that's fossil fuels um whether that's bees whether that's um fresh water yes exactly it's just like the human hand just stirring up the mud in the water and making everything murky and not as it should be in you know the perfect tranquility that it naturally and you know the, the clear state in which it should ha it should be you know exist yeah absolutely i think it's just mm. the fact that for the first time in a while we're seeing finally the consequences of a cumulative effect of anthropogenic the anthropogenic hand on the natural world yeah. right and the, the the planet's been around for billions of years and it's really only been in the last 500 of those number of billion that we've kind of propagated in any significant number as human beings and it's no surprise therefore that if the world deals in the time scale of millions of years that something that happens very suddenly within the span of a few hundred you know has unintended consequences and quite catastrophic ones at that yeah exactly it's yeah it's 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 scary but also the developments and the medications that humans are using you know there, there is a bright side to it is that you know oh, yeah mm, it mm. is extremely depressing what's and going on but through our you know intelligence and our technology i think you know, things will be alleviated with better knowledge of the situation. Things might, you know, even be reversed into the future. I agree. I think as, as, as dire as things may seem, I think human ingenuity will sort of win out and um, ultimately technology will be our emancipator out of this. Because one way to look at it really is, is that everything is balanced, right? Pre-human um, there's there's almost a way to look at the earth and and everything on and in the earth as as self-correcting um you know it's um every time there's an imbalance it, it gets corrected to equilibrium the right. i suppose the the negative way of looking at human interference is that you know in the past half millennia humans have have severely disrupted that self-correction and that that balance um but on the mm. other hand, you mentioned technology there, Andre, um, and and as you and as you just said, Seb, you know the the answers are all in nature, um, for for medicinal and and even engineering, and scientific progress. 
um, the answers have all been peppered around the earth. Um, so I feel like optimistically um, some kind of common sense or, or level of human ingenuity will prevail to, to get closer back to that original state. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in a very abstract philosophical sense, in poetic sense, but also in a very real sense, we are the universe trying to understand itself. And I suppose we're only going to really achieve that or get closer to that end goal by perpetuating our technological advancement and being better able to understand ourselves and our place in this universe, right? Mm. And I suppose that's really at the crux of what these podcasts are all about. Absolutely. Seeing seeing the uh, the centrality and connection between humans and the universe, humans as the universe, you know, that's often what we find ourselves concluding on a lot of these podcasts. And there's definitely the, the, the relationship with bees. Um, <laughs> I feel like at, at least with the ways the bees themselves relate to the nature, nature and resources around them definitely, definitely backs that point up. Yeah. And I just want to finally explore sort of the hive as a metaphor in terms of how the hive-like consciousness it has almost been adopted inadvertently by the internet or through the internet, right? So we have this now decentralized network and it's amazing because people talk about no real value coming off the back of the internet because of so many of in the internet services are seemingly, and I say seemingly with an underlying and bold, um, free because you have the likes of YouTube, you have the likes of social media, you have the, um, well, those two particularly, um, the social media in all its variety and color. And essentially what it is, is the democratization of information on a mass scale. And I think it's hard to monetize that and put a value and a number on that. But I think the impact and I suppose collective uprising of consciousness is non-trivial I think it's huge but 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 I, but I think it's very difficult and potentially impossible to put in monetary terms but I think it's non-trivial it's far from trivial I mean it's a completely uh, new way of organizing society um, of organizing information and people and uh, the internet I think what you're getting at here Andre is um, you know like a hive and and Sebi, maybe maybe you can talk to this um, as you, you've spent so many hours observing the, the hive behavior. The, the internet provides that kind of interconnected platform um, that is highly decentralized, sort of the worker bee fashion. Um, only through internet we observe, you know, sharing of information, ideas, and also work too. But things in terms of work, you know, labor, capital, ownership, um, everything we know is becoming more decentralized. Look at currency, look at cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Um, everything, um, means of exchange, commerce is, is becoming more kind of complementary, interdependent and decentralized, just like a beehive. Um, yeah. do, I mean, there's got to be some credence yeah. to that. Yeah, definitely. I think the decentralization dynamic is, is an overarching one and you're seeing it across all kinds of space. Now you're probably going to see it manifest first in the financial space and that's why you've got the acronym DeFi, Decentralized Finance. And I think you're only going to see it accrue across all facets of life, whether that's your personal data. So you will have complete and utter control over your personal data and you will, you will have the option to sell out your personal data for a price, right? 
and the, the same will be true of politics. I hope we'll see the day where we engage with minor bills that get passed in the Commons at 6pm when no one's paying attention, but we have the option to engage via an app through a decentralized ledger, right? Where we, the, the, the truth is irrefutable through code and mathematics, which is what we're talking about when we talk about the blockchain. And I, I think the blockchain and a decentralized network can help on so many, it, 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 will, it will potentially revolutionize the foundation of every business is what I'm trying to say. Um, and, I, and I think starting with finance, um, but, but, but I think the analogy is apt mm. in terms of the hive. And I think the hive in a sense is a decentralized network. Although we do talk about the queen as a central node, I think we can almost look at the queen as a metaphor for humanity. And then every worker is as important as the worker next to him and the worker next to him and the worker next to him. We're all part of the same network. And there is almost this great equalization that happens when you talk about the blockchain and a, de a, a decentralized ledger, essentially, which is what underlies any given blockchain. Certainly with information sharing and, and um, the way new currencies um, and forms of exchange are being organized, um, there is something almost egalitarian about it um, in, in the way that the blockchain ledgers are um, kind of uh, organizing society. Um, you put it very eloquently yeah. there. The, the next worker is, is exactly the same worth as the next worker. Um, and I can definitely say that that's true in terms of information sharing on the internet. For better or for worse, that's led to some um, fake news catastrophes, but it's also led to um, an incredible level of freedom um, in terms of information sharing and consumption that we haven't seen yeah. before. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think it's that exposure to information that's kind of um, a, a vice and a blessing all in one. Um, so, so it's, I think what the blockchain will also do in a non-trivial way is um, provide an equality of opportunity, a true equality of opportunity across the board, which as, as we know is, is the right side of equality, right? We don't want equality of outcome because that's forced. Mm. And that's unfortunately what's happening in a lot of institutions and establishments today. What we want, for sure, and I find it very difficult for anyone to argue against this, is an equality of opportunity. Mm. Because why wouldn't you, right? Why would you want to exclude a particular group or a demographic from achieving their apex? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because it benefits yeah. the whole, right? Like a hive. Mm. Absolutely. It benefits people yeah. at the top or the bottom. I've never really thought about um, this in this sense, but as you talk about it, it I really can see, you know, the parallels between the two. Um, even, even, you know, with the internet, which is basically the most modern, you know, artificial human construct that you can really imagine. Um, it basically doesn't even physically exist, really. Um, and as you say, over time, I feel like this artificial human, you know, very robotic being is becoming, you know, more fluid and biological in a way, and the complexity increases. So it's actually doing its own little loop of, you know, being a man-made anthropogenic thing to actually making the full loop back to, you know, actually reinstating biological systems and biological complexity and bi biological thinking, um, which is, you know, also like reflected in the hive, you know, basically based on hive activity. Yeah, well, you're even one step ahead there, Sebi. So you're talking about almost the integration of technology and biology, but and um, 
cybernetics in terms of what Elon's doing with Neuralink. And I guess when the confluence of what Neuralink's trying to do in terms of combining hardware technology and um, circuitry with our wetware, when when I talk about wetware, I talk about our flesh and blood. When we talk about that dynamic interplaying with the blockchain and what a decentralized internet looks like where you are the internet end to end there's no middlemen there's no bank between you and your money you are your money you are your bank you're everything like the full stack top to bottom and you are technologically integrated although this might sound like something out of cyberpunk 2077 um I, I, I think it's the reality we're going to see play out over the next 50, 100 years and then, you know, out into the future. But but, but I, th- I think it's really interesting what we can speculate about it now and sort of the parallels we can draw to the insect world, particularly the hive. And Sevi, to, to that point that Andre has just made, um, the, the sort of hive-esque, decentralised nature of, of society that we seem to be darting towards obviously that carries positives um you know it carries a lot of um great opportunities for egalitarianism in terms of opportunity um it it really does carry a lot of a lot of positives but it also carries issues of alienation um and misinformation so just really from from all that you've seen in your your beekeeping life um how would you say what could we learn from the hive-like mind, the sort of hive-like approach to, to human consciousness, Sebi? I believe that in a way that every bee looks after the next bee. And, you know, although we say the human, you know, the way things are moving is to a decentralized um, source of power and the individual becoming more more important, um, the human society doesn't really act in the same way it's, it's i'd say it's more selfish the individual will benefit and you know a certain group of individuals will benefit but a lot of people will suffer i think as a result of this although it is positive you know i'd say you know the positives outweigh the negatives a lot of people out there will feel extremely alienated by these changes and a lot of people need management and a lot of people need a leadership and and controls and limits and that's you know often what people will you know um crave at the end of the day is is a sense of um you know unidirectional management um so i'd I'd say you know the differences are that that you know human society is more selfish and that people don't really look out in the same way that bees do for each other and that that can cause problems. I feel brilliant point, absolutely brilliant point there. Yeah, it's. I mean, we're not comparing apples with apples here. Um, there's things to learn from from hive-like consciousness, um, but but absolutely, the, if you leave humans completely unlimited in what they can do, um, they can innovate, but they can also cause a hell of a lot of damage. So I suppose. <laughs> It's a very, a very different uh, scenario with humans that, that unfortunately, um, although I like to be optimistic about human progress, and I am, carries a lot more individu- selfish individualism. Mm. So I think yeah. what we can learn from the bees is that we need to temper potentially the coming wave of individualism with 
a equal and balanced wave of compassion and understanding. Mm. Yeah, mm. definitely, definitely. Absolutely. Marvellous. Sebi, I think that's uh, a great point to conclude on. Thanks for coming on. It's been an absolute education, at least for me. And um, Absolutely. It's, it's, I concur. It's, it's, <laughs> I concur. It's been, it's, it's, it's been a real, re, re, really, really fascinating. You seem like a bottomless pit of information and knowledge when it comes to bees and beekeeping. And it's no surprise given you've what, had the bee, beehives now for a number of years, haven't you? Yeah, three years now. Wow. So yeah, it's been an absolute education and, and thanks for coming on and I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back in the not too distant future. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me and I very much look forward to, to coming back on the Bro Bears podcast. Brilliant. All right, Bro Bear, for the last Wonderful. time. Take care. All the best. Biological Cheers. Bro Bears. Thank Biological you. Bro Bye. Tatty bye. Cheers. Everybody, over and out. Pow. Over and out. Pow.